welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hey, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to journalist, author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. An experienced journalist who's written for publications including The Telegraph, The Guardian and The Mail on Sunday. Elizabeth's first book was published in 2011 and she went on to publish a further three novels, including The Party, which was a Richard and Judy book club pick. In 2017, after a relationship breakup, Elizabeth came up with the idea of a new podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. In the podcast, she speaks to successful people about three perceived failures and how they dealt with them. The podcast was an instant success, and after eight episodes, it had been downloaded more than 200,000 times, and she had a book deal. The resulting book, How to Fail, was a Sunday Times bestseller, and the follow-up, Philosophy, is published on the 1st of October. Elizabeth, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely being on the other side of this podcast thing. Thank you for that lovely intro. And you know, I can't tell you how excited I am about having you on here. I said to you just before we started recording, myself and my team are huge fans of your podcast. I listen to it religiously. So it's very strange talking to you in real life. That means so, so much to me. And I'm a huge fan of mostly books and, and independent booksellers do so much for authors. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Let's just carry on praising each other for the entirety of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start things off by going back to your childhood. You were born in England and raised in Northern Ireland. I understand you were interested in writing from a really early age. Yes, I was. I was a bit of a weirdo in that respect because there are no writers in my immediate family, but I loved books. And one of my enormous privileges was that I grew up in a household surrounded by books with parents who both loved reading and thought it was important and who would read to me at bedtime, things like that. So I think I just loved the tangibility of a story that I could hold in my hands that someone else had told, but which I could imagine. And from the age of four, I remember wanting to write books myself. Um, So it it was, it was a very sort of deep-seated, lifelong yearning. And, And when I published my first book, it's one of the only times in my life where a dream has come true And the expectation has matched the reality. It's just something I've loved all my life. Oh, that's amazing. What was the first book you remember reading? I remember reading the Megan Mogg books by Judith Kerr, and I loved them so much. (laughs) Wait, is it? No, no, hang on. I've got that wrong. Judith Kerr wrote the Mogg books. Yes. Yes. Megan Mogg was Jan Pinkowski. Yes. Have I said that right? And do you know what? Isn't this terrible? As a bookseller, before <laughs> you'd said Megan Mogg books by Judith Kerr, and I didn't pick up on that. No, but do you know why that is? Because I, so I first remember reading the Megan Mogg books, which I can go into, but I also loved Judith Kerr, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, and I went on to read When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, her first autobiography. Yes, gorgeous. So all of those books I love, but the Megan Mogg ones, I just, that's probably one of my earliest memories. I just remember the visuals are so striking and so unique. 
And I think I also remember the sense of character. Like they had real character, those illustrated figures. And I loved the feel of the book and the look of the book. And those are the ones that I would always choose if I got a choice to read them myself. Yeah, they're gorgeous. And it's funny, I ask this question to everybody that comes onto our podcast. Pretty much every book that people are bringing up are books that really stand the test of time. Mm. And I think those ones absolutely do. And people these days are still reading those books as if they've just been published. I think it's amazing. Yeah, as well as a lifelong fascination with reading and with books. It also, I think, sparked my lifelong love of cats. And, and a cat was actually one of the first things I learned how to draw. And I'm sure it was directly inspired by that. I have a cat called Huxley, who's a ginger cat, who is an absolute character. And he'll probably come and interrupt this recording halfway through because he hates to be left out of absolutely anything. <laughs> I feel like I know that from having listened to you somewhere. I feel like the cat has featured at some point. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he has. He often comes and just sort of knocks the microphone with a swish of his tail. <laughs> So as you grew up, you then went on and read history at Cambridge. Yes. And after graduating, began working as a journalist. Uh, In 2018, you launched your hugely successful podcast, How to Fail. The second book linked to that podcast, Philosophy, is out on the 1st of October. Could you just kind of summarise what that book's all about? Yes. So Philosophy is an accumulation of all the things that I have learned from talking to my brilliant guests and from essentially spending the last two and a bit years researching failure and what it means. And I really wanted somewhere to put all of that accumulated experience and wisdom that could be a practical guide for life's rough patches for other people. And the more that I did the podcast, the more that I realized there were themes that kept cropping up again and again. So I developed what I called the seven principles of failure, which are designed to help and to offer pragmatic advice as to what to do when you're going through something tricky. But they're not entirely all encompassing. They're just meant to be sort of guidance points. But those seven principles of failure have been developed over the kind of months and years. And I also use them in my live shows. I did a series of uh, live podcast shows when How to Fail, my previous book came out. And I started using them on stage and people really responded to them and really wanted them to be put somewhere in writing. So that's what philosophy is. And as well as the seven failure principles, it is packed full of inspirational, comforting quotes from past guests and from people I admire. And it's beautifully illustrated by an illustrator called Paul Blow. And at the end, I have put together what I call a catalogue of failure. So if anyone who's listened to my podcast will know, I ask guests to come prepared with three failures. And they often email me those failures in advance. And I never get a chance to really talk about the content of those emails on the podcast. And it was just really nice to have somewhere with their permission to put them because some of those explanations are so profound and beautiful. And I often think that you can tell a lot, not just from the content of someone's failure, but how they choose to express it. So that in a nutshell is philosophy. <laughs> well, I totally agree about the catalogue at the end. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Just seeing how different people responded to probably exactly the same questions turned in exactly the same way. Yeah. Some people literally did it like a short bullet point list and other people really kind of downloaded onto the page. 
I thought Fern Cotton's explanation about her third failure was just absolutely stunning. So good. And and she has been so lovely and supportive about this whole process because actually it's quite weird getting in touch with people to say, you know that thing that you wrote that was immensely personal and that was a kind of a brain dump of all your greatest insecurities and vulnerabilities. Can I put that in a book? Um, but Fern was immediately <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yes, I love this idea. And and the other person whose failures are so wonderfully expressed is Nigel Slater, um, to the extent mm-hmm. that, you know, you can really tell that he's a writer. And he, when he came to my flat to record the podcast, I actually printed out those failures and got him to sign them for me because I just thought that I, I really want to get them framed. That's reminded me I haven't oh. done that yet. But yeah, the, the, so so I got a chance to sort of explore some of my favourite failures in that addendum. Yeah, it's amazing. And the book itself is beautiful. It's a little gift hardback and it's going to look amazing on our shelves and <laughs> our tables, front and centre. Um, one of the principles is being open about vulnerabilities at the source of true strength. And I thought that was really interesting because obviously in writing this book and developing the podcast, you've had to share a lot of your own vulnerabilities and your own personal experiences. Did you find that a difficult thing to do or did it come quite naturally? It's an interesting question because, and it's a good question. And the way you phrase it is that I had to share my vulnerabilities, but actually I didn't. That was totally my choice. And it's one of those things that I think I'm lucky enough that it has come relatively naturally to me to do that. So I am someone who, if you find yourself sitting next to me at dinner, I will tend to I don't want to say overshare, but I will share quite quite happily. And I'll generally ask you a lot of questions as well, to the extent that sometimes my friends have to be like, can you stop asking me questions? Because I just just want to sit here with a glass of wine. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So the the instinct has come naturally to me. But the the more that I did the podcast and the more that I wrote about failure, the more I realized that that instinct does not come naturally to a lot of people who quite understandably, like I think they're far saner than I am, like quite understandably feel a degree of either shame over things that have gone wrong or stigma, or they just want to keep things private and deal with them in their own home and process it in a very kind of private, intimate way. And I completely respect and understand that. But I attack the notion and I interrogate the notion that we have anything to feel ashamed about when something in our life goes wrong. When something in our life goes wrong and we've put in the effort and we've worked hard towards something and it still goes wrong, that does not make us ourselves a failure. It means we failed, but we're actually in charge of the emotion that we attach to it. And I know that that's a lot easier said than done. And in philosophy, I go into ways that you can do this. But I truly have come to believe that, as you say, sharing vulnerabilities actually makes us stronger because it's the source of true human connection. It's what brings us together. It's what equalizes us. And it's just a, it's an amazingly liberating thing when you realize that other people have struggled too. So I've never found it difficult. I do find it emotional sometimes. But again, I'm unapologetic about feeling emotional about things because again I'm I'm a big proponent that that is a way to preserve your mental health is not to deny your emotions but to feel them and to express them and to share them so um yeah definitely that you know there's a bit in philosophy where I talk about a recent miscarriage I had and and that's always emotional but I always find it incredibly necessary not only for me in that I find it relatively cathartic and therapeutic, but also for other women 
or even other men and and kind of couples who've been through something similar who don't feel able to talk about it, who don't feel comfortable talking about it, because I want them to know that they're not alone and that there is no shame attached to it. Do you know, I was actually going to bring that part of the book up because it's really interesting what you said about working really hard for something and then still still not getting the outcome that you were looking for. I, I have a couple of really good friends that are going through exactly the situation you're going through in terms of trying to conceive and, and not being able to. And I know the work you do has been really inspiring for them. Oh. So I'd just like to say thank you oh, on means, their behalf. That means so much. I'm actually welling up. That means so much to me. Thank <laughs> you. And I'm so sorry that your friends are going through this. Well, they'll be really pleased to hear you say that. So yeah. <laughs> I'll pass that on. So the the premise of your books and your podcasts are about self-reflection and often taking the positives from from negative experiences. And you've had so many fascinating discussions, I mean, throughout the series of podcasts that you've, you've recorded. How on earth did you decide what to include in the book? That is a great question, and I've never been asked it before. So <laughs> how did I decide? Well, I was incredibly lucky that I, from my earlier days as a journalist, Someone put me in touch with an amazing woman called Rowena who started transcribing tapes for interviews that I was doing when I had a very tight turnaround and I didn't have time to do it for myself. And I commissioned Rowena to transcribe all of the podcast interviews up to that point when when it came to write the book. And um, she helped me to organize them according to the failure principles that I was already working with in my head. So there was a kind of thematic process where I read through all of the transcriptions because sometimes you take things in differently when you read them from when you hear them. So that was very yeah. important because I knew there are certain podcast episodes that will always stick in my mind, but there are certain other ones where there's been an amazing conversation that I will only remember when I read it back to myself. So that was part of the process. Um, And I knew that there were certain people that I definitely wanted to include, like Mo Gaudat, who appeared in season four and came back again during a lockdown special, because Mo's thinking had genuinely changed my life. Like I had instituted that in in my life, the stuff that he said. So I knew that I wanted him in it. Um, And then it was just a question of kind of going through which passages and which quotations fitted and made for a a read that would be like a smooth journey for the reader. So my, my aspiration with philosophy, as you say, it is a small book, small, but mighty. Um, But, (laughs) but the idea is that you can read it in a day very easily, or you can dip into it as, and when you need it at different junctures of your life, or indeed you can do both. Um, and so I, I want, I was quite brutal with myself because obviously I want to include everything because every single one of my guests is pretty fantastic and comes up with some nugget of wisdom. But yeah, I had to be, I had to make it quite streamlined um, and also put in my own thinking because my own thinking has massively evolved since I launched the podcast in July 2018 and how to fail the part memoir, part manifesto uh, book that came out of that was again a very tight turnaround where it was published in, when was it published? January. Yeah, January 2019. So I I basically wrote it in three months. So since then, not only have I got so much more material to plunder, but I've also really kind of finessed my own thinking on failure. 
It's interesting. I mean, I don't think it will surprise you that the one name I'd written down on here was Mo Gaudet. Oh. Um, and I was chatting to my colleague, Lindsay, earlier on, who's also a big fan of the podcast, and she that was the one, the one name she brought up as well. Oh, I love that. You should get him on this podcast. He'd love it. Oh, my goodness. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, we'll make that happen. It. Yes, yes, we will. I actually even remember where I was when I listened to that that episode because we just renovated our house and I was, I was, I think I was putting carpet down. Oh my gosh, what a perfect time! Like a, a really uninspiring moment, and then you're listening to this incredibly inspiring man who can lift you out of the carpet fitting. It helped. But when when I recorded that interview with Mo, I to my shame I'd never heard of him, and I was approached by the book publicist being like, I just think this would be a really good fit. And then I read his book and I read his work and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then we met and I have a lovely sound engineer called Chris um, who who has a kind of mobile recording unit. And so he comes wherever the interview takes place. And this was pre-pandemic, obviously. We met at the publisher's office. Uh, Mo was there, his daughter sat in on the interview and we recorded this interview and came out afterwards and I said to Chris, that was one of the most mind-blowing conversations I've ever had. And Chris is a man of specific tastes who will not give a compliment unless it's due. And I have never heard him so enthusiastic. He was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And we let it run. There were no edits to that conversation because I was like, people need to hear his phenomenal wisdom. So I'm really glad it resonated with you. It really did. You mentioned the fact that obviously that was recorded pre-COVID. We're now six months into life with COVID. How has that changed things for you? How's life been during this weird time? Um, I think, you know, I talk a lot in philosophy about getting comfortable with uncertainty and building up your resilience to certain situations by realising that although you're not in control of what happens a lot of the time, you can, if you practice hard enough, control your responses to it. And that's been my biggest lesson that I can do that. And and I don't think I'd have been able to do it in the same way had I not had this amazing failure journey where I've been taught how to do it by some of the world's greatest minds. So uh, yeah, I mean, I had a lockdown of two halves. The first half was really difficult for various reasons. I found out I was pregnant again and had another miscarriage um, in the first sort of eight weeks. And that was really difficult um, and traumatic because although I was lucky enough to be with my wonderful partner, it, it was also very isolating. And normally in the depths of post-miscarriage grief, I would seek to distract myself by going out for dinner with friends and stuff like that and doing loads of work. But I didn't have those distractions. And looking back in a funny sort of way, I'm quite grateful for that because it really meant I had to process and sit with the discomfort, which is always what I'm advocating other people should do. So to do that, I think in a in a, in a strange way made me uh, come to terms with my grief more quickly. But then the second half of lockdown, I hit a groove of kind of creativity. And I wonder now whether it's because, not to get too deep, but I sort of failed to create something so important to me and I'd failed to stay pregnant that I sort of wanted to take that and make something from it and make something creative in, a, in another way. So I finished a draft of a new novel in the second half of lockdown, oh, wow. which, which I look back now and I'm like, God, that was a surreal time. It really was. But I was able to do that because there was nothing in my diary. I didn't have to go out in the evenings. I could manage my day in a way that I'd never been able to before, where 
I sat down at like five or 6 p.m. to write some of the novel. And I'd never used to do that. I used to have to kind of do it at weekends or fit it around my working day. And I always used to write in cafes. And I really missed that in the first half of lockdown. But in the second half, I found these coffee shop sound videos on YouTube. And they, <laughs> honestly, oh my God, they transformed my life. It was so helpful. And, um, and so the second half of lockdown was... Uh, creative and I should say like beyond all of that it's been a horrific time to live through and all of those heroic frontline workers who have protected us who've protected people like me so I can go and write my novel with coffee shop sounds on YouTube and (laughs) all of those families who've lost loved ones it's just it's utterly heartbreaking and such an unmooring time to live through that I have to say one of my takeaway lessons is there, there was no failure in lockdown if you survived it. Like, congratulations to you. Pat on the back. Doesn't matter if you never baked a sodding loaf of banana bread. You've got through <laughs> it, and that is enough. Yeah, it was such a strange time, wasn't it? Looking back, um, and obviously we're still living through it now. It's not like it's all done. But uh, we were talking about this in the shop because obviously our shop closed for three months um, and we just carried on training. We delivered books locally and just kind of lived in a state of chaos in the middle of the shop. But we were saying the other day, we can't actually really remember very much about that time. Yeah. Because I think everybody's brains have just gone a bit fuzzled, haven't they? Well, it's, it's so strange. I, I think it's changed our concept of time. I mean, I can't, when you said six months now, I was like, has it? I, I mean, on one hand, it feels like two weeks. On another hand, it feels like two millennia. It's, it's, so, it's so strange. And I think it's because we were all forced to take a step back and our diaries were completely emptied, you know, and that was... That was the sort of, that's never happened and might never happen yeah. again. And so time acquired this like weird elastic quality. But how is your bookshop doing now? Because it must have been such a stressful time for you. Yeah, it is six months exactly. Because yesterday was the six month anniversary of us closing the shop. It was the oh 23rd of March. It, yeah, it was. It was really stressful. But we've had a ridiculous amount of support from people locally and nationally actually. Um, I think there's been a real surge of people across the UK and probably across the world, actually, but definitely in the UK, making a concerted effort to support local businesses and independent businesses. And I've certainly found that with people, um, with my customers and old and new people that have appeared out of the woodwork uh, that I'd never had any interactions with before who are being hugely supportive. And it you talk about being quite emotional about things. That makes me very emotional yeah. every time I even think about it because it means a great deal. Well, it's a reflection of you, really, that. And can I ask you a geeky question? Like, since you, since you reopened the physical shop, what book has sold the most? Oh, my goodness. Sorry to put you on um, the spot there. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think there's been a single, like, one single book. What we found is that an awful lot of Big books have been sold. So right. we're selling a lot of hardbacks that might not necessarily, people might normally have said, oh, I don't have time to read that. When lockdown first happened, Hilary Mantel's new book had just come out. Yeah. And there'd been a huge surge of sales on publication day. And then two weeks later, we shut down. And and then that book just kept selling, kept selling all the way through lockdown and, it's, and sold since we've reopened as well. Because I think people have just said, well, I've got time. and I can sit at home and I can read this. Yeah. So that that's definitely been popular, but... I mean, obviously, in the last 
few weeks, there's been so many books that have been published. We've been kind of inundated. We've had to we've had to put new tables into the shop. Oh, we've gosh. got so many books. Yeah, it's it's interesting what people read during lockdown because the first half of lockdown, I really felt myself gravitating towards classics that I'd never had time to read before, but also that felt very reassuring and comforting because they had stood the test of time because they'd sort of these books had lasted, and and I found yeah. that just really yeah lovely to do. It was a very nice experience that. We found that people went one extreme or the other. People either went for quite light, uplifting books or went really dark. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was a Peter May book that came out about a global pandemic. It was was actually written, I think it was 15 years ago or something. Um, And and then it was obviously republished as a result of what was going on. And that just sold and sold and sold for us. So So. interesting. I'm reading the Emma Donoghue one now, The Pull of the Stars, which is all about the influenza (laughs) pandemic of 1918. And I'm a bit like, actually, I mean, she's such an amazing writer. I'm like, I just don't know if I want to read what I'm currently living through. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can just look out the window or read the news. But obviously with COVID, your process of letting people know about this book is going to be very different to what you'd normally do. How are you finding the process of of publicising? It's such an interesting one, actually. I think I'm very lucky in the philosophy is coming out at a time when we've all got used to new technology. And I'm now really enjoying the unexpected benefits of that. So the fact that we're able to record this podcast remotely and Mm. I can do it from my own home and you can do it from yours is there's something really wonderful about that and really intimate. And so I've, I've sort of enjoyed that side of it, but yeah, it means that I can't have a big book launch party and I absolutely love book launch parties they're my favorite they are my favorite (laughs) until I'd been in this trade I used to work in something very different I'd never been to one ever until I'd bought my bookshop and yeah (laughs) I remember my first one and just going this trade knows how to party oh it really does so I'm (laughs) sad about that but I am having a socially distanced dinner of six if I'm still allowed which is uh, people who have directly been involved in the book. So my editor, my agent, the am- amazing publicist, Naomi Manton, and the amazing marketing person. Um, so hopefully that's happening. And then the other slightly weird thing <laughs> is that alongside doing sort of uh, remote recordings, uh, a lot of podcasts, um, a lot of email interviews, a lot of Zoom interviews, I'm also able to do a live show at the London Palladium. Now, I saw this. Yeah. I, I read about this. And it's this is amazing. so counterintuitive because I'm like, but how can this? Anyway, the London Palladium is basically one of the most COVID secure places you can possibly be because they've put in so many safety measures. So there are temperature checks when you walk in. All of the seating is socially distanced. It's one of the few venues that's so big, it can properly do social, social distancing. So it normally holds 2,000, and I think they're selling sort of 700 tickets or so. Um, and you can only book in uh, in bubbles of two or four. So that, I'm excited to say, is still going ahead. And I'm doing that live show on the 2nd of October, so the day after publication. And I um, the, the, the format is you can buy a, a ticket and a book, come along to the Palladium or you can book a live stream. So this is another whole new way of doing it because when I've done live shows in the past, it's really relied on people being able to get to whatever venue I'm doing it in. So actually I think there's a whole pile of opportunity that's come my way as a result of it. And it's, you know, I'm a real home person and I really like being able to do stuff from home rather than (laughs) rush around and travel to various places, which is part of the exhaustion of promotion 
um, it's actually been nice and a really good lesson in how we can do it in other ways. Yeah, I think this, I think 2020 has certainly shown us how we can adjust things. Yeah. I've got an awful lot of friends that work in offices that commute a long way. And obviously that's all changed. And they've discovered a whole new lease of life without that horrendous commute each day. So Yeah, well, this is the thing is that I think we've all shown that we're really motivated to work from home because there was always this argument that like, if companies allow people to work from home, they just take advantage and stay in bed all day. And that's not the point. That is absolutely not what's happened. And I talk in philosophy about the fact that there can be a failure, there can be an existential failure, like a global pandemic. And there's no meaning to it. It would be monstrous for me to sort of ascribe meaning to it and be like, and you'll be fine if you just institute these seven failure principles. But what I do say is that sometimes unexpected meaning comes out of it. And sometimes in the process of time, you can choose to attach a meaning that you found from it. And one of the meanings for me anyway, from COVID-19 has been that hopefully it gives us a more flexible working future, which is going to massively benefit women, marginalised people and people living with a disability. So I think that is one good thing that's come out of it. I totally agree. So a lot of people are turning to books. We've already touched on that in terms of the shop. Yeah. And I think that's more so than normal. We're really getting that feedback from people. What was the last book that you read? The last book I read was Inside Story by Martin Amis, which, as you'll know, has just come out and is a massive doorstopper of a sort of novel. It's like it describes itself as a novel, but is actually lightly veiled autobiography and kind of an essay collection. (laughs) It's a very strange beast. Have you read it? I haven't. It's only just come into the shop and I hadn't had an advanced copy, but you're right. When it arrived, we I think we got it two days ago. I mean, it's literally a beast, isn't it? It's a brick. So I read it because I interviewed Martin Amos yesterday, again, over the phone. And it's for an episode of Radio 4's Open Book that comes out this Sunday. And so I, I spent the summer, I had a few months notice and I spent the summer just going on a Martin Amis reading jag, which culminated with, with Inside Story. Well, it seems like a really interesting book. There's stuff I've heard about it and I was doing a bit more research when you said you'd read it, but I'd also heard about it before. And I just think the fact, like you say, I I hadn't realised it was being presented as fiction because I just totally interpreted it as being a factual summary of his experiences. But it sounds like it's it's going to be a good read. Yeah, it's an interesting read. He, whatever you think of Martin Amos, the one thing that you can say is that he generates opinion and provokes thought. He is, you know, I think he's a fantastic stylist and I love his nonfiction. I I think experience, his 2000 memoir is, you know, one of the best memoirs ever written. And the interesting thing about Amos is that he is a, man is much nicer than his protagonist, his fictional protagonist. <laughs> and what and so it's fascinating inside story because it's a combination of fiction and fact. So you get the like the nice Martin Amos who is surprisingly tender about his friendship with Christopher Hitchens and 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 sentimental about being a family man. And you also get the kind of fictionalized version of quote unquote Martin who then is, you know, one one of his novelistic protagonists. And it's, I've kept thinking about it since finishing reading it. But my favourite of Amos's books, other than experience, is Time's Arrow, which is the story, it's the life of a Nazi doctor told backwards. Um, and it's 
really such an incredible technical feat as well as being a brilliant read because his conceit at the time was that the Holocaust can only make sense in an inverted world. But the, but the technical feat of, of being able to take someone from their deathbed all the way back to yeah. their moment of their birth, and that's how, you know, it was bef- before Benjamin Button did it. Yes. Um, but he does it, he does it so cleverly. So there are these like scenes where I just remember one line where a character cries controllably because she's crying in reverse, she's <laughs> crying controllably. And then there's there are scenes where the protagonist goes to the cinema and he emerges from the cinema with more money in his pocket. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> clever and and profoundly moving. I kind of have a theory that I think books impact people in a lot of different ways. And I think that most people have a book that has had a significant impact on them, be it on a personal level, be it on a professional level. Um, something that's changed their life in some way. Have you got a book like that? Sarah, I cannot tell you how hard this was for me to choose. <laughs> it was so <laughs> difficult because so many books have remained so memorable to me for very different reasons. So I had to really like nail it down to the one that's had most impact on me. And I've cheated slightly. It came down to a choice of of three. One was Bonfire the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. And the reason that which had, is amazing. Which is one of my favorite books of all time. And the reason that had an impact on me was because I was a journalist when I read it. And I, it made me realize that I could take journalistic narrative and combine it with fiction and write a novel. He was one of the first people to make me realize that was possible. The second mm. one was Elizabeth Jane Howard's The Cazalet Chronicles, which I just, I absolutely adore um, as a sequence of novels. I find them comforting and illuminating. But then there are so many Elizabeth Jane Howard books that I love, including her Slipstream um, memoir. And ironically, she's also, she was the stepmother of Martin Amis, so it all connects. So I couldn't whittle it down to one Elizabeth Jane Howard. So then I slightly cheated and I chose a quartet, the Neapolitan Quartet by Elena Ferranti. And the reason I chose this is because I read this quartet at a specific juncture in my life when I had just left my ex-husband. I was in the process of getting divorced. I had imploded my life in quite a spectacular and unexpected fashion. I'd been through my first sort of rounds of infertility treatment. I'd tried and failed to have babies, all of that. And I took myself off to LA for three months to kind of recover and lick my wounds. And I was working in LA as a feature writer for The Observer. And my now darling friend, Fran Bowman, whose mother owns Persephone Bookshop, another fantastic independent bookshop. Yes, um, gorgeous. She was living in LA at the time and we got very close and she was reading Elena Ferranti. And she's like, you must read this. And it was before it had become massively popular. And I started reading it. And the reason it had such an impact on me was twofold. One was that it is a quartet that deals with a lifelong female friendship with all of its attendant complexities. And it's so multifaceted and nuanced. And I'd never read a female friendship being given that much importance and respect in a work of literature. And the women-led unconventional lives, given the setting that they found themselves in, which was they were born into 1950s Naples. And one of them goes through a divorce. And the way Ferranti writes about it, the marital breakup is almost like a feminist radical act of self. And it made me feel so empowered by that. I was like, oh, that is a way of looking at it, that it is a woman 
finding her voice and finding herself in a really meaningful way. And the other reason was, was that I'd never read prose quite like it. And I know that it's translated and that we owe a lot to the translator who is called Anne someone, I can't recall. But so maybe that's why I'd never read prose quite like it. But but I'd read an interview with Elena Franti afterwards in which she said that she deliberately chose the prose style of the great Victorian classics that were, as we know, so often written by men. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to take this male prose style, quote unquote male prose style, and use it to encapsulate a fundamentally female experience. And I found that really revelatory. So Elena Franti, not only are they brilliant, brilliant, gripping novels, but she's really challenged and changed the way that I've thought about being a woman. And I've since read more of her books and her essay collection, Franto Muglia, I think you pronounce it. And um, she's just such a brilliant thinker as well as a brilliant novelist. So in the end, those are the books that I chose. <laughs> That's allowed. That's allowed. Thank it's you. funny when I was told, though, they were the books you were choosing. It took me back to just as I took over the shop. Um, so I've only had the shop for three and a half years. And when I was buying it, first of all, there's nothing like buying a bookshop to make you feel like the least well-read person. <laughs> I can imagine. Everybody else seems to have read more than you have. Um, but one of my very, very good friends, a girl I met at university, Lindsay, she is an avid reader. And she actually introduced me to these books at that point. I'd never heard of them until I was buying the shop. And I totally agree with everything you've said. So it was just really lovely to hear you talk about them in that way. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you approve of that choice. I mean, I really did agonise over it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to philosophy for a minute. In the book, you talk about suffering from imposter syndrome, which is something I think an awful lot of people can relate to. Uh, what advice would you give to people that feel the same? Yes, it's such an interesting thing because where I mostly suffer from imposter syndrome now, ironically, is success. Because I've spoken so much about failure and because the entire premise of the podcast and the books that have come out of it is failure, it and, and it is me being the most authentically vulnerable in public that I've ever been. And to find that resonate in such a way was such an incredible gift for me and still continues to be a gift. Like the messages I get from listeners and readers are so wonderful and heartwarming and generous. And I can't quite believe that I'm being accepted for who I actually am. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's the sense of like, oh, well, I don't deserve this. And is it a bit fraudulent? Because I don't feel like I'm making enough effort to warrant this. And that for me is a classic case of imposter syndrome because I had a really good conversation with my lovely friend, Dolly Alderton, the other day. I'll just name drop there because I know that (laughs) listeners will love her work and her novel, Ghosts, which I've been lucky enough to read, comes out on the 15th of October and is phenomenal. Excellent. She said that her mum had given her really good advice, which was like, you know, everything that you worry about comes from you like everything that you worry about not being able to do actually comes from a place within you that is all still there so actually you just need to continue unlocking that and being yourself so when I get really nervous about standing on stage at the London Palladium which I absolutely will and when I question whether I'm worthy of that and and all these amazing people who bought tickets to see me whether what I say will resonate with them and have meaning 
I have to remind myself that that's within me. It's like all within me and it's not that I'm putting on an act. And so I found that a a helpful tool to use. And I would also say it's often women who suffer from imposter syndrome, or maybe it's often just women who talk about it more because I think a lot of men do as well. And one of the things that I say quite jokingly, but it does have serious intent, is that if you can imagine the most arrogant person of your acquaintance, the kind of bombastic, you know, we all know them, the sort of bombastic CEO who bores on at dinner, like the one who's really like the top 5% of the population. And if you can imagine how that person would react to your worries, and if you can decide to take just maybe like 1% of their confidence and manifest it in your own life, that's a very helpful thing. And it's also sort of quite liberating because if you don't claim the space that you've created for yourself, then someone else is going to claim that space and they won't be as worthy of it. So you really need to sort of step into your power and and realize, I think, like Elena Ferranti taught me, that that's a radical act. In a world which preys on insecurities, it's a hugely radical act to have faith in yourself. I totally agree. In my I call it my former life. I used to work in a corporate environment. And I remember somebody saying to me really early on about when we were looking at job applications, we were looking at people that were applying for roles that we were advertising and um, the quality of the candidates. And I remember talking with a male colleague of mine who said, well, I look at a job and I think, what if I can do 20, 30% of it, then I'll apply. And I know, I know this has been said a number of many, many times but in the it past. Actually but I, to you. This is amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was I was sat there thinking exactly what you know I think a lot of people think, which is if I can't do 95% of what that job says, then you know, I wouldn't apply for it. And it was so fascinating having that conversation because it was just it, it really opened my eyes to the reality of that being a thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is there one thing, if there's one thing that you'd like readers to get out of your book, what would that be? I'd like them to feel less fearful of taking risks. And that's a kind of multifaceted thing to say, because it also encompasses, I'd like them to feel less alone. Um, I'd like them not to be scared of failure. I'd like them not to see it as a personal definition on who they are, because it isn't. I'd like them to realize that they're not their worst thoughts. They exist separately from that and that all of failure can be treated as data acquisition. Most of it anyway. I realize, by the way, that I should caveat all of this by by stating that I know I speak from a position of real privilege and that I'm white and middle class and that certain people in our society are not given as many opportunities to fail as others. And, And that's just a sort of caveat that I talk about in the book and that I want to place around this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was speaking to Gloria Steinem on the podcast and she said this fascinating thing to me about fear, which is that sometimes when we feel fear, it's because fear is a signifier of growth. We feel fear when something is unknown and it feels like we're taking a leap into an uncertain future. But something is unknown if we haven't experienced it yet. And obviously, it has to be unknown for it to provide space for you to grow into. And, and that kind of blew my mind. So if, if philosophy can help people feel 
less fearful or that fear can be an opportunity and it's actually signaling that you can grow somewhere and you can learn something from this, then I'll be a very happy woman. Well, I think that's an amazing, amazing place to stop today. Thank you so much for everything that you've talked about today. It's been so lovely talking to you. Your book is gorgeous and I know it will do incredibly well. And it's just been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I've loved it so much, Sarah. Thank you for your lovely questions and for all that you do with your magnificent bookshop. Elizabeth's new book, Philosophy, is available to buy from the Mostly Books website. 